0: Welcome to Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Sparacino. Okay, and welcome back, everyone. I was taking my microphone off. I was getting ready to leave. Um, I want to welcome everyone to the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club, and I am going to be joined today by John Ingram, who is coming to us from Orlando. John, good morning. How are you? You look beautiful today. A uh, couple of things I want to say is that I am I am your guest host today uh, for Tammy Sparacino. So this is the Tammy Sparacino's Journal Club, guest hosted by me, Joe Basha, and again joined by my dear friend, John Ingram, from Orlando, Florida, sitting in his incredible library with that nice big leather couch and that nice suit. John, are you wearing shorts are you or is that suit are you wearing actual suit pants one will
1: never know Joe. one, one will
0: never, never know, know. <laughs> exactly okay so i think i'll go forward here and we're going to just start right up i have to tell everyone that i have to leave exactly at 9:15 so i'm at 9:15 i'm going to be turning this over to john to do his john ingram's knowledge nuggets and uh And closing out the show today so I appreciate you John more than you'll ever know Uh, so I'm gonna try to do my best to uh, do Tammy Sparacino's Journal Club justice I also wanted to point out anybody else that calls in and even for uh, I'm gonna do this for the other folks too can you show some of these things Um, can you move a camera for me magic so John Ingram, John, you need to talk, tell me about this fellow. What's this? What's the fellow that sent me these? I had his thing, and I and I can't find it.
1: Yeah, this is a friend of mine. He's a really tough perfusionist, Joe, 20, 20 years experience thereabouts or more, and uh, he decided to just have some fun with uh, with our field of perfusion and make some of these really nice, cool-looking uh, T-shirts, hats, surgical caps, uh I think he even has a few other things in the hopper he came up with the design of you know perfusion we give your heart a rest and basically um he's not uh you know even he's not making a dime off of this a lot of times he just gives these out but he is creating a website uh it's not it's under construction we uh you know back up in about a month there you go and um he's basically uh going to have a website where he's going to sell them but uh they're going to be so cheap i don't think he's going to make any money off him at all, so he's just having fun with it, I've got fact and uh, he's traveling profusionist at the moment, and a lot of times he takes a few with him, and, and people want him, wherever he goes, people mm-hmm. want him, sometimes at the meetings, so yeah, it's uh, going to be going to be pretty cool. Well, and I'm going to wear this, what's his name? Alan Klima, and uh, his, his website's Profusion Design, Profusion Designs, I think, but that's under construction, and people will be able to go on and, and shop his merchandise, and he has custom stuff as well. Whatever you want to do, he'll do for you as well. Well, we need to make sure we get his uh, when he got
0: when he has his website up. We yeah. need to make sure that we highlight that um, he has donated this stuff to us, which is so incredibly generous. And uh, I don't even know why I have to wear a hat. You know, when you look at my uh, when you look at my head, it's really kind of pointless. I think, but nevertheless, um, we need to make sure that we do an advertisement for him, and it, it'll be free. It won't cost him anything, but we're going to, for his him doing this, we're going to definitely give him uh, some advertising time, and it's just so incredibly kind of him, and I appreciate it so much. I got the box, opened it up, and was so excited. I really was. But I'm wearing that the, the surgical cap, okay? So I'm wearing that to work today. Um, so let's go ahead and get right started with Tammy Sparacino's Journal Club, and uh, if I can. And so the topic for today Is extracorporeal oxygenation, and this was actually a question brought up to me just recently, but extracorporeal oxygenation and coronavirus 2019 epidemic, is the membrane fail-safe to cross-contamination? And this article is from the Department of Emergency and Organ Transplant in Italy, Dr. Schicamaro. Schicamaro and Rochelia, uh, really incredible Italian names, but also some folks from the Netherlands, the Department of Cardiac Surgery and Heart and Vascular Center, and also another uh, institution from the Netherlands. So, they, as we know, Italy was decimated. They were hammered with uh, coronavirus early on, and they really, really, really got a lot of pressure from it. So. Moving on for the article, veno-venous extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, we call it ECMO, has been safely used as invasive mechanical respiratory support for almost 40 years. Now, there's a caveat to that. It really has not been used very effectively for 40 years. I think it's really only been the past 12 to 15 years where it really has gotten to where it has good outcomes and is used more mainstream. This therapy makes full use of cardiopulmonary bypass technologies to take over the respiratory function of the lungs, providing oxygen transport and carbon dioxide removal. Historically, several factors, such as the high-risk profile target population, the complex technical management, and the generalized skepticism affected the widespread adoption of this therapy. Hence, ECMO for refractory respiratory failure became a niche resource limited to small numbers of patients. And I totally agree with that. I think that uh, they bring up some very good points here, and that is the high-risk profile of these patients that we're dealing, their, their risk factors are really enormous. And the complex technical management, everybody thinks ECMO, or the uninformed thinks ECMO is just, you just stick these tubes in and it just runs. And it's far more complex than that. Um, since then, extra has steadily improved, which is true. Advanced biocompatibility, high performance oxygenators, optimized circuit designs are all elements that increase the safety and the ease of use of this therapy, boosting its reliability among clinicians. The spread of swine flu, which is H1N1 virus in 2009, led to a pandemic associated with large numbers of patients developing ARDS, which resulted in an exceptionally increased ECMO caseload. That is absolutely true. And that is where ECMO really, for respiratory failure, in my view, really hit the springboard. Um, Following that, the studies, uh, the promising studies from the CESAR trial Uh, which is something that, you know, the CESAR trial uh, actually is controversial. There's a lot of people that don't really believe in it. They think that it was a poorly designed study, but certainly it showed um, great survivability for influenza-associated ARDS, uh, aspiration pneumonia and associated ARDS, and other causes. Uh, But this is all pre-COVID, but it showed very promising results. I mean, survival rates were 60, as high as 70, and maybe even higher than that in some patient populations. But certainly, 60%, I think, is the generally understood survivability for influenza-associated ARDS, which is usually the most common that we see. But all of this increased and enhanced the usage of ECMO. So why was this patient this paper published? COVID-19 has a lot of unknowns. There's been, as a result of it, this very high uh, ARDS rate, very severe. It's much higher than influenza, uh, but it has resulted in a much higher utilization of ECMO than I've ever seen. And there seems to be, and I, I put a lack of credible information, and maybe that's a little strong. I'll say there's just really a lack of consistent data out there that is reliable. I'll say reliable versus credible. Maybe that would have been a, a, a less terse term. So what were the problems to be solved? Well, the problem that they're looking at specifically is to determine the risk of spreading COVID-19 from the ECMO oxygenator to the gas outlet port, thereby spreading it throughout the room where you're located. So, COVID-19 and the ECMO uh, oxygenator, or, or lung, as you will. One, the coronavirus disease 2019 is an infectious disease caused by the novel SARS syndrome coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2. The disease originated in China in 2019 and has since spread worldwide causing a pandemic that, as of April 2nd, 2020, counts almost 1 million cases and 50,000 deaths. Now, let's put that into perspective. That was April of 2020. Today, there are over 154 million cases and over 3.2 million deaths worldwide, which basically is about a 2% mortality. That's pretty doggone high. The COVID 19 pandemic ravaged Italy. A dramatic number of deaths have been registered as of April of 2020 in the 12,550 case fatality rate, which was 11.8% at that time. Data on the characteristics of COVID-19 patients dying in Italy highlights ARDS as acute condition, reasonably leading to the exodus observed in 96.5% of these patients. Despite the lack of preemptory knowledge, VV ECMO is considered as a standard of care for the management of eligible patients with COVID-19 related ARDS, refractory to conventional treatment in expert centers following WHO and the SCCM, the Society of Critical Care Medicine's recommendations. Some studies reporting a few COVID-19 patients treated with ECMO have been published, but based on anecdotal reports, many others are receiving treatment currently as this paper was written. We have some data now, which I'll elucidate uh, as we move forward with this. However, mortality rates, despite the ECMO, are still high, and actual proof of clear benefit with ECMO and these patients is missing. On March 24th, Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, or ELSO, published a guidance document, which is meant to be general, a general consensus guideline for the use of ECMO in COVID-19 patients. And actually, Tammy went over that last journal club. So you can go back to that to see that consensus statement. So should clinicians be concerned? Well, although ECMO is not, and I stress this, a therapy to be rushed to the front line when all resources are stretched in a pandemic. As a matter of numbers, it is predictable to expect an, an important or significant caseload of ECMO support during this outbreak. So what they're saying there, I fundamentally agree with. In fact, there's there's I think that we have not done. Of course, we don't know. And it's very difficult. We had this discussion during the spring conference, John, if you remember, uh, when we were talking about the ethics of healthcare and where we are with this. But we have definitely pushed the boundaries of both resources and technical capabilities when it comes to managing these patients. And the My concern is the collateral damage, those patients that are falling through the cracks, not getting treated, uh, and even in ELSO's um, uh, uh, consensus guideline, if you recall, they recommended that ECMO not be used on non-COVID patients when you reach a certain capacity level. And if our outcomes with COVID are so bad, why would we be denying ECMO for another cause that might have actually a superior potential survival? We are throwing the we are putting people on ECMO that, look, it's very difficult to see somebody not be able to receive every available resource, but you know, they're, they're, at, at what where do you go from ECMO? Should everyone therefore, Get a lung transplant. They're not candidates. So they're they're morbidly obese. They have other comorbidities. So wh- where is the endpoint? Just because you have ECMO, I don't think it necessarily means you should use ECMO, or if you're using it as a bridge to recovery, there needs to be some uh, 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 guideline for progression. Are they improving or are they not improving? Uh, because just because you can get them decannulated doesn't mean you actually have a survivor. If they don't leave the hospital or if they leave the hospital and can do nothing but lay in a bed on a trait collar and a feeding tube, I don't really consider that a success. But that's my fundamental philosophical belief. In particular, there are two questions that must be answered. It is fundamental to ascertain whether trace Uh, traces of the SARS-CoV-2 is present in blood or not, and two, whether the virus can cross the membrane, get into the gas phase, aerosolize, and concur to viral dissemination, in other words, spread throughout your room or facility. To the author's knowledge, and these are their words, just a few studies evaluated the biodistribution of SARS-CoV-2. Hang et al prospectively collected data on 41 patients with laboratory confirmed COVID-19. Real-time reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction or RT-PCR analysis confirmed six cases, which is 15% of that population of viral RNAemia. In other words, they found RNA, COVID RNA in the blood. Zhang et al assessed the presence of viral RNA in blood samples taken from 39 COVID patients by means of a quantitative PCR test. Six of those patients tested blood positive, and among these three were also serum positive. So SARS-CoV-2 could replicate in all cells, but they also found it in the plasma, in in that particular one they were looking for. Interestingly, none of the blood positive patients were also positive to the oral swabs, which I found that very interesting. Finally, Wang et al. analyzed 1,070 specimens collected from 205 patients with COVID-19 throughout the progress of the illness. Viral RNA was found in 307 blood specimens by RT-PCR analysis, which resulted in a positivity rate of 1% of cases. Hence, very limited and controversial data are available, and these suggest a possibility of systemic infection. So really, at the end of the day, what they're saying here is that the data is controversial, it's there, this is a respiratory disease, we'll talk a little bit more about that here moving forward, and yes, you have blood positivity, but what does that really mean, and to what degree? Extracorporeal science history has seen many breakthroughs in terms of oxygenation technology, no question. But arguably one of the most important has been the development of membrane oxygenators, which if you if you understand our oxygenators, they are hollow fiber microporous uh oxygenators. They are not true membranes. Uh, unlike a silicone sheet membrane like the Simed, So you have to take that into consideration, which addresses the huge compatibility issues of previous technologies, overcoming what the, was the blood air contact, as in a bubble oxygenator, and allowing at the same time high gas exchange performance. Today, ECMO oxygenators are made of of a polymethylpentene pentene, known as PMP, and asymmetric with a sponge-like microporous wall and a 0.1 micrometer or micron thin dense outer skin that provides the complete separation of blood from the gas phase. Now they you see they said a 0.1 micrometer thin, dense outer layer skin. It is still not a true membrane, but it is submicroporous and we can discuss that a little later. I'm not exactly sure the size. I reached out to 3M, who's the only manufacturer of it, and I did not get an answer, so I'm still trying to figure that out. In contrast with the polypropylene, which is what we generally use for bypass surgery or for, valve, for cardiopulmonary bypass, those are polypropylene uh, fibers. PMP has a 15-fold better oxygen and 10-fold better CO2 permeability coefficient. This close to ideal efficacy or efficiency, rather, in terms of gas exchange, together with their homogeneous membrane, makes PMP oxygenators reliable and durable devices. But not just that. So theoretically, and I'm sure you can see that membrane, that is a wetted membrane. That is what it looks like. So we'll talk a little more about that video. Theoretically, there is no chance that SARS-CoV-2 can move from the bloodstream to the gas phase in a PMP or polymethylpentene oxygenator and disseminate through the exhaust port. PMP fiber's physical characteristics should not allow the so-called plasma leakage, which is what you're seeing here, the presentation of yellow-colored foam in the gas outlet of the oxygenator followed by a loss of efficiency. Usually, you see your CO2s going up before you see your PO2s dropping, and you can actually see the blood's pretty red in that uh, video, but yet the CO2 is quite high. Uh, This phenomenon was common with polypropylene membranes, whereas it is rarely observed in modern times ECMO with the PMP fiber. However, rarely does not mean never. As a matter of fact, few reports of plasma leakage with PMP oxygenators have in fact been published. CPB and COVID-19, as predictable, all scheduled heart surgeries have been postponed in the great majority of institutions at the time of this study, of course, you gotta keep that in mind, because of the COVID-19 emergency. And again, that goes full circle back to my original comment that here we are, Canceling heart surgeries, and if you're the one that's having angina, um, how many of these patients went on to have an MI and did not survive? We don't know the answer to that, but I think we're going to eventually find it out, and I think we're going to be very surprised. And the question is, did we do the right thing? That's going to be something that's debated, I think, uh, for the entirety of uh, uh, what's left of my life. Um, However, cardiac surgery is a practice in which postponing a procedure is not always an option. Thus, clinicians must be prepared to deal with the possible infected patients who will need to undergo CPB-assisted heart surgery. CPB oxygenators are usually made of polypropylene membrane that lacks the dense outer skin, which is typical for the PMP fibers. Polypropylene hollow fibers are microporous, and this configuration is historically renowned as vulnerable to plasma breakthroughs during long-term extracorporeal support. The average length of extracorporeal supports in cardiac surgery setting, however, is very short as compared with the typical respiratory ECMO, which you're talking a couple of hours versus a couple of weeks and even a month. So a big, huge difference, even several days. So it's very, very different in that regard. And this makes the occurrence of plasma leakage a hardly ever happening scenario in the cardiac surgery realm. However, a word of caution is certainly appropriate. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that. So SARS-CoV-2 belongs to the uh, beta-coronaviruses category and it has a round or elliptical and often pleomorphic, which just means different sizes and different shapes, and a diameter of approximately 60 to 140 uh, nanometers. As with other, and just for reference, 140 nanometers is 0.14 micrometers. 60 is 0.06 micrometers or microns, so keep that in mind. As with other respiratory pathogens, including influenza and rhinovirus, the transmission is believed to occur through respiratory droplets. And particle size is about 5 to 10 microns in diameter, such as from coughing or from sneezing. And what I want to show you here is that in the PMP fiber, the max core size and this is not of the sheath I'm going to talk about that but this is actually the fiber itself which is essentially a standard fiber and this is the case with polypropylene as well is le- equal to is uh, less than or equal to 0.2 microns well you can see that it that at 60 nanometers clearly it would pass right through it if it would actually diffuse across, but that's another topic here that we need to talk about. Here is a guide, this right here is 200 nanometers, and uh, that that references about 0.2 microns, and you can see here, I put this on the different pores of a microporous hollow fiber oxygenator. As you can see, the pores are not uniformly circular. They're somewhat elongated, and their distribution is inconsistent. They're not all really pretty, and I'll just zoom in on that, and I'm going to actually have another picture of it uh, here as we move forward.
1: Joe, can I interject something there? Yeah. Just real quickly for our audience, when these manufacturers make these fibers and they make these micropores in them, they are chemically induced. In other words, the manufacturer, people think that, oh, it's a certain pore size and it's a perfectly web like a perfectly netted net with holes. It's actually very irregular, exactly like you're showing, because this is chemically induced. They expose the fibers to some type of chemical which, as a general rule, erodes away these tiny holes like you're showing. And since it's a chemical process, it's very irregular. The, the the shape of the holes are all different. The length, you see one there is very long, you see some very short, some wider, some yes. thinner. And that's because it's a chemical process.
0: Absolutely. And what I want to show you is what they do to change this from a microporous polypropylene to a polymethylpentene, and I'm going to go ahead and zoom in on this a little bit, and here you see a standard microporous filter uh, uh, fiber, and over here on the right side, I'll highlight it, you see this is the plasma phase, this is the gas phase, and these usually get covered obviously with some type of protein layer, um, but and diffusion is occurring through the micropores into the gas and the oxygen diffusing back across into the uh, plasma and obviously into the blood. Um, If you look here, you see it's skinned. And this is the bottom picture. These fibers now have a layer on them. And as you can see, and it's on the plasma or on the blood side, if you will. And so here is the sheath. Here is the standard microporous fiber and here's your gas phase. Now this sheath, and again, I'm not sure, it says non-porous, but it is, what I understand, is submicroporous. And again, I don't exactly know the size, but I'm trying to find that out. But nevertheless, it is still not considered what would be a true membrane. And I have a different lecture to talk about why you see that plasma leakage as I showed you in that video with the uh, polypropylene microporous hollow fibers and you don't see it with this. And it has to do with lipids, uh, And but I don't want to get into that topic right now. But my next presentation on that, I think you'll find that very interesting. The author's conclusions is that their purpose for writing this seeks to address ECMO clinicians concerns regarding the risk of viral dissemination via the oxygenator's exhaust port exhaust port I'm sorry we concluded that this is possible for SARS-CoV-2 to cross the membrane and aerosolize through the gas exit port of the membrane lung This phenomenon might be dependent on the presence of viral traces in the bloodstream and on the occurrence of fiber damage, which are both considered rare scenarios. However, it is reasonable to minimize the risk of viral dissemination and cross-contamination by evacuation of the gas exhaust port of the oxygenator and a strict control for the detection of plasma leakage signs, leading to early oxygenator exchange, and these measures that should be taken to prevent spreading of aerosols from the membrane lung. Further resource search um, is needed to better understand SARS-CoV-2 biodistribution over time during the illness, whereas current data appear to be inconsistent. It would also be relevant to investigate the predisposing factors of the acute phase reaction leading to membrane lung damage. Resources must be optimized in a pandemic and the dilemma between doing and learning loudly echoes without an answer. This work highlights that a combined approach is crucial. Now, In their study, they have concluded that it is theoretically possible for this SARS-CoV-2 to cross the membrane. It is theoretically possible. And their suggestion is uh, to uh, vent that gas. But let's look further into this. So this is a COVID-19 transmission and blood transfusion case report. And what I want you to look at right here is that there was a blood donation on February 12th of 2020. It was a transfusion of platelets. So this was a donation, total donation. Then that patient's uh, platelets were donated on February 14th of 2020. So the platelet donor has been diagnosed with COVID-19, on February 15th, so let's just look at this again. February 12th, person goes in, donates blood. On February 14th, that donor's platelets were transfused. The next day on February 15th, that donor is diagnosed with COVID-19. The platelet recipient was tested for SARS-CoV-2 and the result was negative on February 16th. On February 18th, they were tested again. On February 23, they were tested again, still negative. And on March 1st, they were tested yet again, and they were still negative. And it is important to note that the recipient of this of these platelet, this platelet donation from this infected patient was already given immunocompromising drugs. So they were being immunocompromised. And they were given a platelet transfusion from a donor who was actually COVID positive. And you know the incubation period lasts for several days to uh, up to a couple of weeks. So if the patient was diagnosed on February 14th, they definitely were uh, COVID positive at the time of their donation. This is another very, in, and, and uh, let me make sure I reference the people that wrote this. This was from the Journal of Infectious uh, Public Health, and uh, it was uh, by Dr. Cho and uh, colleagues and published uh, in, uh, in that journal, um, and it was May of 2020. From the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Volume 2, to uh, 2002, August uh, 1st of 2020, Dr. Dress and his colleagues from France, they had three intensive care units that they were looking at, 27 patients with invasive mechanical ventilation, they were on the ventilator, two patients had CRRT only, six patients were on CRRT and ECMO, and 19 patients were on ECMO only. For the patients that were only on CRRT, they had, yeah, let me make sure I get this right. I'm sorry. So of these patients, this patient population, there were eight positive samples from the lower respiratory tracts, four positive samples from their plasma, and four negative plasma samples. In the dialysis effluent fluid, like in CRRT, where you have the bag that you have to change or it goes in the drain, all eight of those patients were negative for the uh, CRRT or the CVVH effluent. For the patients that were on ECMO only, and ECMO and CRRT, 25 of those samples from lower respiratory tract, 13 were positive from the plasma, Twelve were negative from the plasma, so 50-50 split on both of those, but what's so important is 25 were negative from, this, from scavenging the ECMO membrane from the exhaust port of the oxygenator. And I have an oxygenator here, and I just want to show you, and this is sort of my thought of this, is here you have the blood in, and if you can see that, let me put it right here, You have the blood in here. You have your water lines here for your heat exchanger. It goes through. Now, this is a reverse, so it's not a central uh, flow, so it flows on the outside of the fibers, right? Your arterial outlet is here. Your gas inlet is here, where you see the green, and your gas outlet is right here, right here. So I'll point to it. I don't know, could you zoom in on that at all? Because I really want them to see this, huh? Yeah. There. Is it that camera? Yeah. So here you see your gas in. And here you see your gas outlet right here. So the flow of the blood is on the outside. The gas is flowing on the inside of the fibers coming from here and then exhausting here. So even though there's a very high pressure on the blood phase, there is still a pressure on the sweep side and the virus isn't going to get diffused across even a standard polypropylene filter, I don't believe. And I am confident it's not gonna separate from the blood and just find its way outside of one of these pores. So we can go back to my slides, and I think that that previous slide that I showed you, where they're 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 saying that basically they they checked the effluent fluid, and they also scavenged and they found no transmission of uh, the uh, the virus. Surgery for standard surgery venting for volatile anesthetics is very common, and a standard of Unlike ECMO, however, and this is something I think that's very important, unlike ECMO, cardiac surgery is, or cardiopulmonary bypass, is a one-to-one ratio with a perfusionist and for a much shorter duration. There are also far fewer people invading the safety zone, if you will, of the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. When we're on pump, and we have the cannulas coming in, and we have our gas flow, we have everything that we're doing, we have an area, it's kind of like the anesthesia area behind the ether screen. They don't like a lot of people up there crowding it because they need to see what's going on and be able to access things. We're sort of the same way. We don't have a crowd of people all standing around the oxygenator, moving in and out, coming back and forth. So unlike ECMO, your ratios of perfusionists to patients are going to vary depending on where you are and what the circumstances are in your institution it could be one to two it could be one to three it could be one to four and John in your case could be one to sixteen and so you have to take that into consideration and there are many people doing many things there's labs being done x-rays respiratory, nursing, dealing with their lines, turning the patient, cleaning the patient, checking on, giving uh, uh, medications, uh, adjusting their drips, having to flush lines. Um, y- y- there's so many things that are going on. Joe, um, Joe and throw in
1: proning into that, which is a
0: big, big deal. Yes, proning. and proning the patient. Oh, no, so there's no. so many things happening that there is tremendous opportunity, unlike in the operating room, there is serious opportunity for either obstruction or an accidental excess amount of of vacuum on your gas outlet port, which is located here. And if you put pressure, if you obstruct this, and you generate a high enough pressure on the gas phase, you will blow air through that lung and into the blood phase of the oxygenator, and that is clearly catastrophic. If you apply an excess amount of vacuum, somebody just isn't paying attention because they don't, they, they're not used to it, they're back there working. Re, anybody, respiratory, decides they need to, they need to suction the patient and they just turned the wrong vacuum all the way up, well, then you have a different problem on your hands, but you still have a really big problem on your hands. And you're going to desat your patient very rapidly and potentially cause damage to the lung itself. So there's, there's a lot going on in there. So my view is that it may be theoretically possible. I am not about to do it. Uh, because I think it is so highly unlikely. And I will tell you this as well, uh, and we can go to the slides and just show that it's going to be a panel discussion. That was actually my last slide, so thank you for that. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and close this, I think. So uh, uh, I I do not recommend it. John, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but uh, my feelings about it are that it is... uh, I believe, very unsafe, very unwise, and very unnecessary because I feel by now, and I felt this way from the beginning, but you know, I wasn't 100% sure. I know it was something that we debated uh, and considered, but by now, we, w- we would know that uh, it was absolutely mandatory to do because we would have everybody infected because I don't think it was, I don't know if you do it, we did not.
1: Well, I don't know if you recall when COVID first hit and everybody was absolutely uh, up in arms about every conceivable way that the virus could end up <clears throat> on, uh, on, uh, in the air, in the air conditioned system, on countertops, on, on everything, everywhere. Um, there was a study apparently that came out of, I want to say Japan, but maybe China also, where they were sampling the uh, humidity. Uh, you know, dra- dripping from the exhaust port of the oxygenator, and they touted that there was COVID uh, virus found in the exhaust port or in the uh, in the um, in the exhaust humidity that was dripping down. And then this was a whole thing that people said, "Oh my gosh, we need to be scavenging." And I think a few people still do this, but that was never able to be duplicated. No one was able to actually ever find it. Uh, uh, And on top of what they claimed was happening. Well, I showed you a a definitive study that shows it is not there. Right. So I don't know where they came up with that, but it put up people in arms even more. And uh, a few people, I I know of one, I think think actually does it still. But um, no, we don't. We never have. um, And um, there doesn't seem to be any um, reason that you would think the virus could somehow free itself up and make it through the pores, and make it through the exhaust and all the things that you were showing. Physically, it's not supposed to be possible. And um, I think that it, that quickly got to spend, uh, dispelled uh, pretty, pretty quickly after um, they came out with that. But that's mm-hmm. talking the first month or two. Mm-hmm. Well, it was kind of crazy.
0: I thought it was very interesting that um, the, uh, the, the authors pointed out that there has really been a lot of very mixed, um, uh, 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 perhaps inconsistent data uh, that has been disseminated uh, within the medical uh, uh, literature, and it has really caused a lot of a lot of problems uh, in terms of making sure we're providing good care. You know, we were doing heart surgery. Now, again, do I think you should uh, vent your 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 volatile anesthetic? Absolutely. But you know, I mean, just so people understand, the volatile anesthetic, uh, like the uh, uh, desflurane or whatever it is we use now, um, is being administered into the gas. So the gas then makes it to the oxygenator and. Is obviously going to come out the exhaust that's not the same as it being in the blood and diffusing back across the membrane into the gas outlet uh, to be gotten rid of that way that's not how it works so you know we vent it because that stuff over a long period of time of breathing it does this to you that's how I ended up like this Uh, because whoever thought of doing that would smell that stuff all day um, but, you know, it's understood that it's, it's not a good thing, and we need to do that. But from a risk-benefit perspective, because of the controls we have in the operating room, when I say controls, I mean control of the environment, our geographical zone where we work, um, lends itself to being able to do this very safely. It's still risky. It still has risk. But the benefits outweigh the risks because we have control. In the ICU, with multiple patients and even with just one patient, you can't stare at something nonstop. And it only takes one moment for something to happen. Somebody step on the line or somebody to turn the vacuum up or obstruct it in some way, kink it, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. And uh, your ball game's over. So I think that the risk-benefit scale is tilted with lower risk, higher benefit in the operating room, and with too higher risk and lower, I mean really no benefit in the ICU, because I I don't believe that you can transmit this disease in that fashion. However, one has to be uh, uh, intellectually honest that these authors, who I think did a really superb job do state it is theoretically possible.
1: Yeah, um, you know, you make a good point about comparing a perfusionist sitting behind the pump who basically has 100% interaction with that with that uh, entire uh, system and all, and no one else having zero percent interaction with that system. You take an ECMO and you move it over to the ICU, that situation has now become completely reversed practically. There is so much interaction in that room between X-ray, blood draws, nursing care, um, sometimes uh, you know, respiratories involved heavily, uh, critical care people. Um, you know, I'm probably leaving a few things out. Uh, we even sometimes have some physical therapy. You know, it, it's uh, some family members coming in and out. Uh, 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 you know, uh, religion, religion, religious. Uh, of people coming in and out. I mean, it's it's almost a list of, of a dozen different people that can come in and out of that room almost on a daily basis. I mean, family members now are basically permitted, you know, once they're COVID negative, to, to come and spend, you know, the whole day again. And um, there's so much interaction near and on the lines and against the pump and under. Sometimes there's power cords running under our lines for the for the compression cuffs on the legs, for the air inflator of the bed. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that does not exist in the OR. And the Absolutely. the uh, the mishaps, the potential for mishaps, I've been giving this a lot of thought here in the last week, is really amazingly high, the
0: potential. It really is. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, I, I went into a room the other day and uh, I was covering this case and they had, for some reason, and I and I don't understand it, but the ECMO was on the from the door from the to the far side of the patient, and all the way up at their head. And I was like, "What? What is that doing over there?" And uh, you know, this is and so we 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 had to. It was quite a process, but we got it moved back over to where it needed to be, and that's really just. I mean, fundamental, and it may have actually been a better place for it back there because less people were going to ever go back there, but to see it and to actually be able to react if something happened uh, would have been very, very complicated. And if that patient were to go into AKI and needing uh, uh, CRRT or CVVH integrated into the ECMO, it was going to be all the way over there, so it needed to get moved and we yeah. uh, we moved it over.
1: I mean, you know, somebody probably said, look, we have x-ray coming in and out once or twice a day. Maybe we brought this patient every every other day or something. Mm. Um, you know, this is big equipment. Sometimes uh, people come in and just, you know, um, assess the patient for other reasons. This thing is in the way. Let's move it to the other side of the room. What they didn't take into account was you can't see any of the numbers. <laughs> yeah, over there and, precisely. And you can't get through it very easily. So uh, you're kind of blinded, but... Uh, now yeah, with so that I said
0: you know there's only one manufacturer of um pmp and that's 3m uh in germany and uh they're the only people that manufacture the polymethylpentene fibers which are bought by the various manuf- oxygenator manufacturers uh that we, we, we that put them into the that do what they do in terms of their bundles um and uh or the manufacturing process but looking at that other case where you saw the plasma leak with the polypropylene uh, filled fiber, which you wouldn't see in the operating room unless you had some phenomenon occur. I mean, it can happen, but it usually takes quite a bit of time. It's gonna take a couple of days. Although I've seen it happen very quickly one time, uh, but the patient had hyperthermia. There was some other, uh, other issues that were going on with that patient. Uh, they had malignant hyperthermia.
1: Occasionally, remember back in the very early days of the mid-late 80s, when when membranes were first coming out, there'd be an occasional one that yeah. was you know defective, and it would happen there in the OR. But those days are long gone. Now I think it's reasonable to ask:
0: Could, in that environment where you saw that uh, that fiber wetting, that plasma leakage? If they were plasma positive for SARS-CoV-2, could that um, actually aerosolize in the room, um, or would it, uh, you know, would it just fall to the floor? Would it actually do that? I don't know. And could you actually get it in that way? Um, it's not known to be a blood-borne disease. It is a respiratory disease, a respiratory virus, and it is generally transmitted. From respiratory droplets to an inoculation into you, the recipient's uh, uh, respiratory tract. So, you know, I don't know. You, they gave a patient uh, platelet transfusions from a SARS-CoV uh, to positive patient, and they did not seroconvert. So, you know, I don't. I don't really know. Even with that plasma leakage, I am not confident that that. Would result in a uh, now we can't leave that. Obviously, we have to fix that. We have to change that lung. It's going to fail, and so you're not going to be able to oxygen. You know, to 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 remove CO two and oxygenate that patient. But at the same time, um, I don't think that I would be that concerned that I'm going to contract uh, 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 COVID nineteen. From that, I'm not. I'm not really convinced of that.
1: I think it seems pretty unlikely, and I don't think there's been any reports that I'm aware of where someone's received the COVID nineteen from a blood transfusion. Are you?
0: I'm not. I, yeah. I I don't believe there is any reports of that, so I don't believe so. Are you guys seeing? I asked Dr. Hoffman and his team, and Matt uh, and those guys. They're seeing an uptick in cases, even though our community numbers are way down. Are you seeing that as well? And are these where are these patients coming just from lingering in the hospital for a long time?
1: And a younger population. Our numbers of twenty-year-olds, uh, thirty-year-olds uh, are starting to go up versus the uh, the older ones. You know, was heavily fifty-year-olds and forty-year-olds, and uh, and that and then we had a cutoff age of of sixty and above. So those people were there, but they weren't going on ECMO. And now we we have handfuls of 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds, it's almost like that's a growing segment now. And I was mm-hmm. speaking with another friend of mine who said the same thing. It seems like the younger uh, the younger age group is now sort of rising up, so to speak, in a bad way with, with the newest strains or what have you.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Okay, so I think, actually, I think because I can <coughs> leave at, right at 9.30 and still make my appointment, and, and uh, I think I might be able to stay through your knowledge nuggets if you can promise me we can get through it by 920, let's say. Yeah, I, I can and, I can knock it out pretty good. But, you're gonna love it. With, with
1: what you just covered, with what you just covered, you're gonna love what I have to say today. Perfect. But before you do, I'm going to spin
0: the wheel. Okay. And uh-huh. our, even though nobody called in and that's okay, we had some great questions online. And I'm gonna send Mario B, the pulmonologist in the Netherlands, because they asked some really good questions. And I'm also going to send, I'm going to spin it twice, once for uh, Mariel and one for Tammy Sparacino. So since this is her journal club, I'm going to spin it for her. So we're going to do Mariel first, okay? Are we ready? Here we go. Let's see what did Tammy, we're doing Mariel, right? Mariel first. Mario wanted an aortic dissection. Uh, Mario, no, I can't do that. We're gonna, we're gonna spin it again. That, Mario, that really was not right.
1: you are gonna be up all night now.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, they're back. Okay, Mario, this is for you. I'm gonna need your address because we're gonna send you. We were gonna send you a uh, an aortic dissection, but we decided not to. So you win a perfweb cup right here. So I'm gonna send you a perfweb cup and it'll be coming to you uh, from uh, from California. There's oh my God, so you did, you won that. All right, so let's see what Tammy Sparacino is gonna win. Mario, make sure you send me your uh, your email. Your I need your actual physical address so that I can send it. And I'll send a box of them so you can give them to your friends. Probably send you a cap too. Um, and we'll see from there. So here's Tammy's spin, so I'll have to look at it later. I hope she wins extra call.
1: Uh
0: <laughs> oh. Ah, Tammy won a ball cap, and she'll be able to pick it out. So I'm gonna send uh, Mary. I'm gonna send you a couple of these as well. So we have ball caps, we have T-shirts. I'll probably just send you one of each. And Tammy, you won a uh, a ball cap. There it is, right there. I think nice. I'll
1: put it on. Hey, and you know, Joe, for our audience, that looks he makes pretty good. Some really nice sweatshirts too. He yeah, a nuts design. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So thank you all so very much.